actually get to participate in being the body of Christ when we use what God has given us to love one another, to care for one another, to be creative in ways that express our love and our joy for God that draws others into worship. There's all sorts of ways that we get to use what God has put in us naturally. Our love for one another doesn't just build up the body of Christ. Our love for one another is actually the light that shines to the outside world and brings good news to people that don't have it. There's something that stands out about people that love one another and care for one another and then turn around and love those that they don't know and care for those hurting outside of their own community. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. Uh, I'm pastor here at Anthem. Uh, we are continuing our series on our values as a church. Uh, last week, we, we opened with this illustration. That I just want to refresh your memory on this, or in case you missed it, that I think sets the stage for why even we're calling uh, this series Unmoved. Uh, and, and, what the, and looking at the values that anchor us. And that is, I talked about when uh, in college I, I went down after C Hurricane Katrina had hit New Orleans and went down to the Ninth Ward where I was stationed uh, there for, for about a week and uh, went down by where the levees had broken. What was shocking was that the houses were uh, no longer sitting where they were. I thought I'd just find like, you know, wood and stuff broken up everywhere on the ground. But instead what I found were uh, somewhat dilapidated but still erect houses, only they were several blocks over. And, and what I found around the levees were blocks and blocks of just concrete pads within like stone steps going up to nowhere. In other words, what had happened was the houses were just completely swept aside and moved somewhere else. And it's a picture of, of what happens for us. The question is, when the storm comes, when the levees break, when the pressure rises, what will hold you in place? See, we, we often spend time, it's like, what is it, how do we as Christians and as the church, how do we make sure that we stayed anchored down to the foundational truths of who God is? When the waters rise, when the pressures come, when we're, we're pushed against, how do we make sure that we're anchored down? And we've described these values as what you might call anchor bolts, uh, what are strong enough to hold us down, the things that when everything around us is changing, these things never do change. And they keep us faithful, no matter how the world around us changes. And so this week, what we're going to be looking at, our second value has to do with how do we engage the culture around us? This is what the value, last week we looked at the Word of God and how we value God's Word over our opinion and how God's Word is what ultimately anchors us to truth. And this week, then the question becomes, well, when the, the waters are rising, the pressure is coming, there's a storm around us culturally, how do we relate to the world around us? How do we relate to those in our city around us? How do we relate to those on campus around us? How do we relate to those in the cubicle next to us? How do we relate? How do we engage? Uh, maybe this sounds familiar because I think more and more as things are changing culturally uh, and we're feeling that, I, I've had more and more conversations with friends where, and, and tell me if this sounds familiar, uh, where some, at some point the conversation just goes to like, they're like, hey, hey, uh, are you thinking about like, uh, like moving to the middle of nowhere, right? Like you had this conversation, like everyone's like all of a sudden like looking up on Google, like how to turn their own butter. Like, how to, how to live off the land? Like, how do I live? Like, like everyone's thinking about, can I, can I buy land way out here? Can I just move, like, away from this? And what's happening is because we, I, and I think we all feel it. I've thought it. I've started Googling it. Like, how do you dress a cow? Like, right? Like, I'm trying to figure out, like, what, what does it look like to continue to live in our day and age? And I, and I think oftentimes what we feel as the pressure is coming is as the church or as individuals, we start to think that more about actively withdrawing. Because here's the thing, it seems like the options on the table are either to compromise or to become a commune. To become a commune and actively withdraw or to compromise and just passively engage in the world around us. Just kind of take it in, unreflectively. I think what we're going to see today from Peter is that Peter's writing in a time where he's saying, you are exiles. There's nothing new actually happening at all times. If anything, I'd say in our generation, we're just awakening to a reality that's always been there, which is this world is not our home. We are citizens of another kingdom. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. 
Yeah, as Peter says, in the midst of that, we are to actively be proclaiming God's marvelous light. We are to be actively pursuing and seeking those in the city, the campus, and the cubicle next to us. And so today what we're going to look at is how do we actively pursue? How do we hold this value of actively pursuing versus just passively withdrawing? And so first what we're going to look at is why active engagement versus withdrawal. Second, a framework for engagement. I, I want to give us a framework for thinking through. A lot of times this conversation around how to engage and what's going on culturally, and I know this could, we could go on for 10 hours getting into all the different issues and topics related to it. But I want to provide a framework for how to think, because honestly, usually there's more heat than light around this discussion. And then third, how we'll actively engage. How can we actively engage as a church? So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Lord, in the midst of a time when we sense everything around us being, honestly, world, or Lord, it feels like the world has gone mad. And, and this storm around us, Lord, and, and how do we engage, Lord? What does it look like to pursue those around us? What does it look like to engage in the world that we're placed in, in this moment that you've placed us in? Lord, what does it look like to be faithful to you in the midst of it? Lord, this is such a big topic. There are so many complex factors that come into it. And so, Lord, help us to focus our thoughts. Lord, would you just guide us by your word? Spirit, would you? Uh, I cannot go down all the rabbit trails, but Spirit, you can address those rabbit trails. And so, Spirit, would you allow me to hit on the right things, and then you take the work from there. And so, Lord, would you guide us? Would this be a time in your word that changes how we think about how we engage with the world around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why active engagement versus passive withdrawal? Peter, uh, again, Peter starts this letter by addressing the church as exiles. This is what it says at the beginning of the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In other words, this is a circular letter. Peter would have written it, and it would have gone from one church, and then it was sent to the next church, and probably copied it and sent it to the next church, and it would have gone around this whole region. This is about probably 30 years after the death and, and resurrection of Jesus, and so by this point, the church has spread all throughout uh, this part of the world, and at this point, they're under persecution, okay? The waters are rising against the church. And so Peter says, you're exiles in the midst of this area according to, this is not by accident, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. I love that. He's saying, do you see that God is at work? He is at work in your midst. He's going before you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they are all at work. This is not an accident. God is forming, conforming you into the image of his son. And he's doing a work in your day through you, church. Because of that, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He doesn't just go, man, it's really tough out there, guys. But, you know, grace and peace, right? You know, like that Hallmark card, you know, or like the little plaque on the wall when it's like everything's going wrong and you're just staring at it and it's like love, eat, peace, whatever, love, live, laugh, right? And you're just like, I don't, I'm not... I'm just not feeling it right now, right? Peter's saying this because this is anchored in something, not in our circumstances, but in the eternal reality of who God is and how he is at work right now. It's not our circumstances, but the character of God that anchors us, right? We are exiles in the world, and again, it's actually healthy that we're probably healthier for us today that we are becoming more aware of this, that we are exiles in this world. Yet, while passing through this world, Peter says we are to engage in the world. If you look at verse 2-9 that we just read, it says, But you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are proclaim Christ, to make him known, to be in the world but not of it. In fact, one of the things we could just go through is logically, we cannot completely just pull out and withdraw from the world. He says we are to be faithful within it and where God has placed us. So a few things. 
for how to engage that Peter hits on in verses 1 through 12. First, he says you have to know something about God. Look at verses, again, this First 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And when he says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, he's saying, do you see that the Lord is good if you know who God is and how good he is? And specifically how good he is for you. Look at what he just said back in, in verse 9. Or, or sorry, then in verse 10, he said, once you were a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When it says that God is good, it's not only the character of God, but we've experienced it because we are not good. We don't deserve his mercy. But yet God has lavished his mercy on us in Jesus Christ. When we ran, God pursued us in our rebellion. And what Peter is saying here is, listen, you're in a world where, yes, it's in rebellion. Yes, where everyone's running the other way. And in the midst of it, yes, they're fighting against God. And yes, right now, that looks like you're right there and you're the ones who are here who they're fighting against, who they're angry at, they're yelling at, they're rejecting, they're scoffing at, they're canceling. Yes, that is true. But do you see that ultimately it's because they're running away from him? And listen, how does God respond? God responds with grace and mercy. Yes, there is a time for God's judgment that will come, but right now, as long as it is still today, there is a chance for repentance and for his grace and his mercy to be poured out in their hearts and their souls so they would taste and know that he is good. They're trying to find goodness in so many things in this world. They're trying to find his beauty and his truth and his love, all the things that God is, his goodness, they're trying to find it in this world and they're enslaved to the things of this world. Do you see that when you look around you? It starts though with seeing God for who he is. Do you taste that he is good? I think one of the greatest antidotes right now for the church, one of the most stabilizing things we could have, just as Peter says here, is we're going to come back to in the midst of just fighting and slander and yelling at one another and dividing is, could we just all pause and could we all just make sure that our souls are anchored in this vision of God as good? Because it would stabilize and anchor us in so many ways. Because I think right now there's so many ways we're looking around. We're going, if we don't trust that he's good, then we're going to latch on to anything that we can find around us right now that would just promise us a little bit of that goodness. Of that security, of that strength, that truth. It's the most stabilizing thing. First, we have to know something about God, and we can't lose sight of that. It's key. No matter how much the culture has gone mad, we have to remember that God is good. And not just get mad along with the crowds. Now next, then how do we engage in the world? This is interesting because Peter says you have to then know something about yourself. So we know something about God, but then look at verses 4 and 5. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Jesus. So he, he has all these different kind of descriptions of the church, and he says, you're a living stone, and then he says, you're chosen and you're precious, and like living stones, you're being built up in a spiritual house, and then he comes to this, you're a holy priesthood, and I, I want to zero in on that because this priesthood is going to come up again in a few verses. It's a big theme in Peter. He, he calls them a priesthood. Now, the interesting thing is, why does Peter call them a priesthood? Have you ever wondered that? Because if you know your Bible, you know this is the New Testament, and you, you go, wait, aren't the, like, the temple imagery and the, the priesthood imagery, isn't that all from the Old Testament? In other words, aren't we done with that by the time we get to the New Testament? So what's Peter doing with this? What Peter's doing is he's saying, listen, yes, the office of priest is done, but the role of the priest continues in the church. See, in, in the Old Testament, the way that God, God's presence in the world was geographically limited, as essentially in his, 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 what you call his covenantal presence technically, was limited to the temple. And so if you wanted to go and be in God's presence and know God, you had to go to the temple, and then the priest would atone for your sins through sacrifices so that you could come into God's presence and you could know God. And then also, then they would teach you about how to live lives of obedience to God. And so the primary purpose was to minister to a sinful people how they could know God and how they could be in relationship with him. And see, so what happens then, though, is in the New Testament now, it tells us, and I'm, gosh, I could spend the next 15 minutes breaking this down 
biblically this thread, but what happens is it goes from the temple is where God is located to now we are the new creation. Jesus says, tear this temple down. Three days, I'll raise it up. It'll be in me and my resurrection. And then now my spirit and my presence will come to reside in my people. And so now we are called this living temple. And because now we are a living temple, he says, now I send you out into the world. And wherever you go, also in the midst of the world, you are now priests who minister so that people can know the living God who is alive inside of you. In other words, there is no place in Scripture when he says you are a priesthood, you are called out to take God's presence, the very access to God, and make it known, to go out into the darkness and proclaim his light, to go out into the things that are broken and that, yes, are perverted and are twisted and are are messed up and upside down, and to proclaim truth into the midst of them. And to make known his mercy and his grace and to say, yes, now there is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice I've experienced through Jesus Christ, the once and forever sacrifice. You can know him. It will take away your guilt. And then you can know God. Can I show you what it looks like to walk with him? Now, that's the big theme of what God gives us throughout all of time for his church. And he gives it to us in the Great Commission. He gives it to us then at Pentecost. This is why, by the way, so... We got to know something about God. We got to know something about ourselves that we're called to be the priest in, in, the, in the world. And that means we got to know what we're to do, right? What it looks like to actively engage in the world. And it looks like to bring light into the darkness, to embody grace and truth where perversion and brokenness and lies reign. This is why God gathered at Pentecost when Christ has ascended to the Father's right hand and he gathers believers from all around the world and they're able to hear in one one voice, which by the way, it's a reversal of Babel and what happens there. Now God's bringing back to align around this one truth and who he is and he allows the spirit to do this work. He fills them with his spirit and then he sends the church so they're alive with God's spirit, with his truth to go out and proclaim his mercies. There is no place in scripture for the church to think, I'm sorry, there just is no place from beginning to end of scripture for the church to think our job is to get a little bit of grace, to get a little bit of God's glory, to get a little bit of this for myself, his goodness, and then just come over here and keep it all to myself. It is meant to be God's glory and his grace goes into your life and then that good Goodness flows out into the world around you. That's why we have Pentecost. That's why we have the Great Commission. Because we are called as the church to actively engage, not passively withdraw. Now, more on that in a moment. How, how do we do that? How do we actively engage the city, the campus, the cubicle? How do we do that for truth, in love, with with? proclamation and good deeds. How, how do we do that, right? Uh, first, I think, we'll go to that in a moment, but I want to address how, in order to address how, we need a framework for how to think about this, uh, this idea of engaging culture, because there's a lot more heat than light on this subject right now. Um, and and I, we can't address every topic or issue, but we can have a framework for locating how our defaults of how we think about this, and then a framework for from there how to think. Okay, so a framework for engaging uh, culture around us. Uh, in his uh, letter, Peter has to address similar things that parallel today's dynamics in the church. I think that Peter, because remember what's happening here again, the, the pressures are building up on the church, and they're in a very pagan environment. And the pressures are building up. In the midst of it, it seems like they start to fight. And so this is why chapter 2 begins again with, put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. What's happening is, you can imagine, and I want to focus in on this dynamic that was probably happening in the church, is they're probably experiencing this thing of, okay, now all these things are going around in the world around us. We have these pagan emperors. We have this kind of all the pagan religions that we're just kind of stewing in, and everyone's coming out of different worldviews into the church. And, and they're wondering, how do we engage with the world that is around us? How can we live faithfully where we're growing up and we're maturing and going deeper in Christ, but at the same time? where we're also reaching those who are around us. And you can imagine that in the midst of it, what's happening is things, decisions are being made. uh, People are trying to think through this well, and then it's leading to arguments. And then usually people are just jumping to conclusions and assuming the worst about what's motivating people. So slander comes, malice comes. I think it's very similar to probably in many ways to what's happening today. 
So while trying to answer the question, how do we engage, they jump to the conclusions about one another and begin maligning one another. So how does Peter address it? What does he do? I mean, obviously here he says, stop doing that, right? <laughs> but there are broader things that Peter does that I think are helpful for us to frame how we think about cultural engagement. Interestingly, First Peter, the letter of First Peter is known for a couple of unique emphases. There are a couple, a couple kind of emphases that come up in Peter's letter in the midst of these dynamics. The first is the sovereignty of God. So I've already read a few verses that have this. I won't be able to go verse by verse with, with all of this, but we, we have language throughout Peter of strong language of foreknowledge. I was in the first few verses. We have chosen over and over again. We have elect over and over again. We have cause to be born again. That's in chapter 1, verse 3, that you're caused to be born again. God has caused you to be born again. And there's also this language, kind of sustainer language, that God is at work. And, and here's the thing. There's a big, I know I just opened a can of worms because there's a big theological debate about what you do about the particulars of that. That's not the point right now. Here's the thing. What's universally acknowledged is that what Peter's focusing on here is he's saying behind everything going on. God is at work. In the midst of a church that's just overwhelmed by the storm and all the waters and pressures coming from the culture around them, he's saying, do you, do you see that everything from beginning to end of your life in the world and everything that's happening, God is still at work. God is still there. There's a heavy emphasis on it. The second thing then, one of the ways that Peter then kind of points them to, and he says one of the ways that God has always been at work, and he's still at work, is if you, if you remember, because we, we preached through First Peter last year, by the way, if this is one of your first times at Anthem, normally we just preach through books of the Bible. Um, every now and then we do a topical series like this, um, and so we preached through First Peter last year. If you remember, Peter, while he's talking about how to live as exiles in the midst of the world, he then is going to spend, right after this text here, the rest of chapter 2, talking about how to engage with the emperor and with the government and what to do about that. What he's going to start doing is he starts emphasizing all of the institutions and the realities that God has created in the world. He, he talks about government and how you're to engage in government. He talks about then the home and what it looks like with husband and wife and children in the home. And then from there, he's going to talk about church structures and how you're going to engage in church structures. In other words, what he's doing is he's saying God is at work generally, but also God has been at work by he's done certain things and created certain things in the world around you that are givens, that are realities that you can't escape. And you're to wisely engage in those things. And in fact, they're actually there to form you and shape you. Why do I go there? Because what Peter is pointing out is another way that God is at work, which is in God's what's called common grace. He's saying that there are already things hardwired into reality in the world all around you because I created this whole thing. And they're inescapable. And I am at work in upholding some of these things, and I'm calling you to engage in these things, to contend for some of these things, to fight for renewal in these things and redemption in these things. But also, I am at work in the midst of them. In other words, Peter's two emphases capture the fact that no matter what is going on, however distorted the church, the culture gets, the breakdown of the home, abuse of government, God is at work already in the world around you, in people's hearts, and in society. Now, let me get particular on this. In other words, because of sin, the world nor the church is ever as good as it should be. However, because of God's common grace at work, it's never as bad as it could be. And that's the key for how we engage let me read this. This, I, this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I want to really unpack this idea of common grace. This comes from a pastor, Tim Keller. Tim Keller has been a pastor in New York City for 30 years. He has been thinking about how to reach people in our... He's, he's like, what's hitting culturally broadly right now, he's been dealing with for at least, I don't know, 10 years, at least. And so what he's been... He's, he has a very helpful way of framing this, of what we mean by common grace and what it looks like in terms of finding what you would say the beginning place to begin to engage the culture. He says this, the doctrine of common grace is widely acknowledged as a teaching of the Bible. The idea is that God bestows gifts of wisdom, moral insight, goodness, and beauty across the human race, regardless of religious belief. 
These gifts, however, are common in that they do not save the soul, yet without them, the world would be an intolerable place to live. So catch that. Common grace doesn't save. It's not salvific grace, but it's the grace that is common in the world. The sun rises every day, right? Gravity is still holding us down. Those are just the beginning of common grace. Common grace in agriculture. Common grace is all throughout, and Keller in this article goes on to quote from church history and then also throughout scripture, but I didn't want to read you three pages, so. Uh, but then he says, the obvious question is, how does common grace square with the idea that there's a sharp antithesis between Christianity or division, between Christianity and every other worldview? He goes to Romans 1. He says, it speaks to the question. The truth about God is suppressed. That's verse 18 of Romans 1. By every human being and every non-Christian worldview helps in that uh, suppression. However, the truth continues to bear down on all of us. Listen to this. This is important theological work. I know it sounds like hair splitting, but it's very important because we miss this, and it causes a lot of confusion. The NIV translates the verse, verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so men are without excuse. But the verbs nosumina are being understood, that's the word in Greek, and kathopatai are being seen, are in the form of present passive participles, okay? That means present passive participle means ongoing action. Not they were seen, but they continue to be seen. The reality of God's nature and our obligations to him are not static, innate ideas or information. They are continually fresh, insistent pressures on the consciousness of every human being. This means that every non-Christian thinker is both fundamentally wrong, and yet they say, uh, may say the same things that they know despite and inconsistently with their worldview. The doctrine of sin means we Christians are not as wise or as right as our worldview should make us. The doctrine of common grace means non-believers as a wrong worldview should make them. Now, why do I quote from this? This is an article where he's talking about how you more in the realm of ideas. But common grace is significant because when engaging with the world, if we have a right understanding of it, it reminds us that there is always an inroad to the gospel. In other words, what's happening right now is we look out into the world and we go, it's all just going to hell. It's all just bad. And it gives us the excuse then to completely withdraw because we go, well, and here's what common grace says, where is God at work and the church wisely in every generation figures out where is, the, where is God at work and where are there things that are inescapable that a non-believer cannot escape from. You mess up the family, it's not going to go well with you. You mess around sexually outside of a biblical sexual ethic, it will not go well with you. You build your marriage on something outside of what God has designed, it will not go well with your marriage. On and on and on. And we can point to these things, we can look to these things, we can build on these things in order to engage the culture. Now, with that, what I've just said is essentially we have this spectrum of usually we just think, do we engage culture or do we passively withdraw from culture? Which one should we do? But what this says is actually there's another axis that we have to consider that's going to be very helpful for us to figure out where do we default to in these conversations and what do we need to challenge ourselves on and how can we unify in the way that we engage culture. And so uh, this quadrant or this chart has always been incredibly helpful as we've talked about this. Uh, you can throw up the chart, and I know there's a lot on there. I'm not going to walk through all of this. Uh, we can send it out later, and you can look at it. Uh, but what I, what I want to you to notice is that, one, we have the two axes of what it looks like to be active or passive at influencing culture. Then we have this idea of do we believe that the world is just so full of common grace, the extreme of it is, that essentially anything that happens in the world is just grace, it's God at work, and so therefore uh, we can just go along with whatever the culture does. That's the extreme version. The low, little common grace is the view that God is at no place anywhere in the world at work. And so therefore everything's bad, so we need to completely do not taste, do not touch, abstain completely from the world, okay? So go to quadrant one. So I'm just going to walk around in clockwise order, starting with the top right. So relevance model. This is what largely a lot of us, if we come out of evangelicalism, have this is kind of our default. And this starts with, if you go more towards the center, right, these are kind of like spread out along, if we were to really chart these. Uh, and it starts with just kind of like the seeker-sensitive movement. 
which says, hey, where are things going on in the culture? How can we just kind of co-op those things? And can we just kind of, from there, we can teach based on those things, and we can just kind of expect that a lot of those things are going to be good. This is what was 20 years ago also where you go, hey, if things are happening in the public schools, public schools are fine, right? So we'll just send our kids to public schools, and there's no need to really think about that much further. Okay? So we just expect that out in the world, good things are happening, and we're going to be actively engaging with the culture, and we can just assume that everything's good. If you go to the extreme of this, I remember once I went to a church, didn't know until I really got there how liberal it actually was, and I was going to preach, and I asked everyone to get out their Bibles, and no one got out a Bible. They actually all had a copy of The Alchemist, if you remember that novel, because their pastor would get together with them, and they would just read from Oprah's book club. And so the, so the idea was, and here's the reason why, Oprah's book club, whatever, read it, engage it, whatever, you know, redeem it. But what I'm saying is the idea was we don't need scripture. This sets the agenda for the church. The culture, and so we have someone who's curating what's going on in the culture and the world, and that can curate and set the agenda for the church. And so we can just read it and get the wisdom, and this is God's truth. Understand? So this is one, one view, relevance. Then go down to the, the transformationist view. This is where now we start to have a very low view of common grace. We're still engaging in culture, but now we view it as culture has gone all wrong. And as you go to more extremes, you get more, and I know neo-Calvinism, some of these you're like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it, you can Google later. Um, but neo-Calvinism just means a distinctively Christian worldview in the way that we engage in the world. So how can I be a lawyer who's thinking like from a distinctively Christian worldview, a doctor, a lawyer, but then you also have the religious right. This gets into more political. We need now, as you go extreme, you get more into political realm, which is the idea that we need, because everything around us is bad, we need to take over all institutions and conquer them and then instantiate God's law. That's what a theonomist is. So a theonomist is God's law in all the land, and so it's not representative democracy, but now we actually just need to have top-down God's law um, everywhere. I could break these charts down for quite a while, but that gives you the general feel. But the idea is that there's no uh, more and more that God's common grace. We need to be suspicious of anything that's going out there in the culture. Now, I want to say before moving on to chart number three, I think a lot of us, I want to put my finger on something you might have felt but didn't know how to articulate it. A lot of us, as things have happened culturally, have felt ourselves moving from more of that relevance category down into the transformationist category. And, and we're finding new alignments and things because we're trying to figure out if things are happening in the culture and I can't just go along with things, what's happening is more and more we're moving down into this quadrant and we're trying to figure out what does it look like now to kind of, you could say, kind of contend or fight back, right? So I'm going to hit the next two really quickly because largely I'm saying that we want to be active. We want to be on this side of the chart. Uh, the two kingdoms is jumping back up to full grace. This is more where you get into like go to church, do the sacraments, high church. And then what you do is then you go out into the world and you just be a teacher, be a lawyer. It doesn't really have anything to do with what happens in the church. It's kind of a, a specific sphere way of looking at it. Moving on to the last one, then we have the um, counterculturalist. The extreme of this, everyone knows, is the Amish. Okay, so this means nothing good is going on out there, outside there, even technology. And so we're going to passively withdraw, or actually I'd say actively withdraw. And the extreme of it is where you get to more and more, where we're just going to move out of culture completely, start a commune of some sort, even to the extreme of possibly trying to avoid technology. Because if you're in technology, you're going to be engaging with the world, right? So these are the different charts. The reason why I bring these up is maybe you're able to identify where you are in these. It's very helpful to have something like this to align when you start to have debates over which kind of social movements and in what ways do you engage in, right? What happened with a lot of people who are in the relevance model is just when social movements came up, they just said, well, why not hitch our wagon to that and just jump in wholesale? Maybe that wasn't a good idea, right? So some of these things are... They help give categories to begin to have conversations. Where are you? And then here's the thing. As you think about this, we as a church are going to be more and more trying to move towards that active and influencing culture, active and engaging in what's in the world around us, active engaging on the campus, active and engaging the university, active and engaging the city around us, actively engaging in companies and cubicles around us, and we want to resource and equip you to be able to do that well in our changing times. So with that, though, it becomes a question that we constantly have to be asking ourselves. If you find yourself on the bottom side of that chart, I, I think you can be asking yourself, because here's the thing, as we move more away from into countercultural, one of the, the things that we forget is we assume that if we can just be the church or just the right people together, we assume that we leave sin behind. It's a wrong assumption. Sin is still at work. 
some of the most awful realities I've seen. I came from Southern California where I pastored there, and there were a lot of home church movements. The worst abuses that people came out of were small, trying to pull out of movements and start their own thing on the side because they believed that there was, they were going to escape from sin if they could just do it right together. But then at the same time, if we're on the bottom side of that, we have to ask ourselves and challenge ourselves, where is God at work? Am I not seeing where God is actually at work, where I can find actually common ground where I can build on with what's going on culturally or what's out there in the world? But then at the same time, if you're on the top side where you're just like, hey, whatever's going on in the world, let's just co-opt it. God's truth, uh, I kind of like this thing a little bit more. We need to be asking ourselves, where am I undervaluing the effect of sin on the world around me? Where am I not taking it seriously enough? And so these are helpful questions because I think we're going to find ourselves with these different pressures kind of back and forth between these. So this is a framework that helps us actively engage, but let's talk about how to actively engage the city, the campus, the cubicle. Uh, we can go back. I can send this to anyone afterwards. Uh, but actively, first one, what I want to say is actively engage your mind and heart with God's vision for redemption. Look at verse 3 again. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He says again that the Lord, he has poured out his mercy on us. In other words, here's the thing, church, in the midst of all this stuff that is going on, here's the best way that we engage with the world around us is that we don't lose the plot You've heard me say it. It's not about trying to be smarter in our day and age. Everyone's trying to get smarter and figure everything out. It's not about just being smarter. I will talk about we need to think harder as Christians. This is going to take the renewing of the mind and thinking much more precisely and harder versus just passively going through life. However, it's not about being smarter. It's about staying sane. And it's more about staying sane because it's about remembering the plot that you are in, the story of redemption that now God has you in. And he is redeeming and he is at work. The best thing we can do is remember the story of redemption, be in God's word, and be disciples who know, love, and obey Jesus in the midst of the modern world. And that's the only way as we do that and we go deeper in that reality that we'll be equipped and able to turn to those who are in the modern world around us, in the culture around us, and be able to help them become disciples of Jesus. Right? Second, so first, be actively engaging your mind and your heart with God's vision for redemption. Then second, be actively engaged where you are. This is kind of the idea of plant or bloom where you're planted, right? Uh, how should I say this? Uh, God has you in this place for this time for a reason. Go back to what Peter says. You are not here by accident. Now, you as a college student, that's helpful to think in terms of you're not just in Columbia to pass through for three or four years. What does it look like to be rooted and be faithful while you're here? Those of you who are longer term, your neighborhood, the company you're in, you're coming and going, where are the coffee shops that you're frequent, all these things, do you think about them as places where God has sovereignly placed you for his purposes to actively engage with the gospel? God has placed, ordained you for this time in this place. We're, in other words, we're all Esther now, right? Like write the verse in Esther where it's like this time in this place. We're all Esther now. This is the time God has placed you where he has you for a reason. I've used this many times, so some of you are like, okay, here we go again, but Acts, I could have just taught this whole topic on Acts 17, when Paul talks to the Areopagus, and he says to them, every human being throughout history, God has ordained their comings and their goings and their dwelling place, so that they might actively feel their way towards him. In other words, everyone around you is in wherever they are, they are blind. Scripture says we're blind, we're enslaved, we're dead in sin. But because of God's common grace, we sense, like, I want, I want to know this, God. I want this beauty. I want love. I want connection. I want security. And we go and we start groping in our blindness for whatever feels like it or whatever pickup artist promises it, whatever product promises it whether it's a car, whether it's a hookup, whatever, whatever it is. And everyone around us is trying to find these things. And my guess is that the people that are in your neighborhood that have about the same socioeconomic status as you, have similar lifestyles as you, they're probably, you've probably worked through some of the idols of the heart where you're like, I'm not groping for these things. These things, actually, I can just be thankful for them because they point me to God's security, God's goodness, and whatnot. In other words, you're the person in their life who knows what they're reaching for, who can actually say, this isn't what, where you're going to find it. Let me 
connect you to who you're really looking for. Let me connect you to Jesus. And we are called to be people so much of mercy that when we're looking around, we don't just scoff at people and roll our eyes at people. And yes, I know, there are going to be a lot of baffling conversations with these things. But you sit down and you listen and you understand what they're really, really their heart is after. And then you articulate the gospel to them with that thing. Say, I know you're looking for it in this thing, but let me share with you how I found it in Jesus. I don't have all the answers, but I found the one who does, and I found the one who is the answer. And begin to build bridges from there. I would just, you know, verse 12 goes on to talk about them living lives and being honorable in their conduct amongst the non-believers. And I would just say, do you know those next to you enough that they would even know you as honorable? This is convicting for me. I know this makes me think about like summer is coming, guys. Like think about summer. Here's the best way. As the church, we're called out into the city. We're not just called to come together. And this is something as we as a church, I'm going to end with a few things that are coming up as we're thinking about our vision as a church. I don't want you to hear everyone come here and let's all get to work building nice little pageantry things and stages and whatnot and platforms here. Our call is to be equipped to go out into the city and make his marvelous light known And this summer, one of the best ways we can start with that is if every one of us is intentional wherever God has planted us. With our neighbors, with our coworkers, Memorial Day is coming up. If you're around, throw a a barbecue and invite people over. Invite people over throughout the summer. Like this is the time of year when you can build those bridges and begin having those relationships. It's worth it. It's worth it. Third, and then we'll end from there, commit to a humble posture. Verse, chapter 5, verse 5 says this, Likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want to notice there that there's a connection between submitting to church leaders and humility. I said it, right? There's a connection there. I, I imagine that in the context, why Peter is saying it. Because probably there were questions in the, at times with where the church was going, why they were doing what they were doing, taking some stances, not, or usually it's actually why not taking other stances and coming down on partisan issues, things like that. And I think humility in these situations looks like not jumping to conclusions. Not jumping to conclusions. Seeking, asking, moving towards unity, asking clarifying questions where... You're not sure how to engage. I, uh, here's why I'm saying this. I, I recently was very humbled by a member here at Anthem who they were wondering where we were headed as a church and they had some questions about some of this stuff because I know right now I feel this, guys. One day I'm like, I feel like, man, am I like an anarchist? And then the next day I'm like, man, am I just like this, this soft person who just goes along with the regime? Like, you know, these are, are confusing times and it's like, where do I stand? And one, one issue, I'm in this quadrant, another issue, I'm in this quadrant and I'm trying to figure it all out because everything's being stirred all up. And in the midst of it, we're all trying to be unified. So I get it, like things come up, you're confused, what's going on? Change is happening in the world around us and change produces complexities and complexities produce concern and concern produces conflict. If you can get that in all your decision making, believe me, it solves a lot of problems. But, with, but this, this change is producing all these complexities. And so this member, though, they sat down with me and they sat down and they said, listen, I have to repent first off that I've become very bitter in my heart towards you and I shouldn't have. And it's because I didn't sit down with you and ask these questions earlier. It's like, wow, that's not normally how these start. And so we then, we went through and he was like, we just clarified and we talked about it and we got on the same page and he had some really helpful things to say about like with the family and whatnot. And then I'm talking about some things which is here's how we are and why we're engaging in this way. And it was like, we came away just excited. We came away united. And I'm walking away going, man, one, I want to be more like him. And two, I'm excited about what God is doing here. And that's because we moved towards, towards unity, but it took humility. Took humility and not arrogantly assuming I know more about what you're thinking than you actually know what you're thinking. And so during this time, it means we do as a church, yes, we as the church in America, we have to move towards one another and we have to be humble in seeking out, do I truly understand versus just jumping to conclusions and being humble and going just because I assume this is a way to do it, that that is the only way to do it. Because here's the thing, you can find it reinforced. You can find whatever podcast or person out there or pundit who will reinforce whatever you're saying. This is very dangerous times. 
and I'm saying it's dangerous times, not because that leads to disagreement. I actually love the proliferation of podcasts and the ability to get in all these niches and get all the data out there. The problem is that we're using it to hide and we're using it to divide and we're using it as ammunition. And then we're going to people who aren't local people who are invested in our lives, who live life with us and we're getting something from them and then we're jumping to conclusions. In other words, what it can do is it can just facilitate arrogance and pride. I feel it. And then when I come back and I'm actually with flesh and blood believers that God has placed in my life, my goodness, how healthy it can be and humbling it is. Because one, life is not so easy that when somebody has an idea, well, that's easy 2,000 miles away. Yep, great idea, theoretically. But guess what? Real people have to implement it, right? So it's helpful to be. It's humbling to be in the process. It's humbling to be thinking through this, but it's unifying. We can be humbled in Christ. Listen, we are in uncharted waters. The church has not, it's one thing to go in a pagan society. It's another thing. The church has not navigated being the church while the culture around it shifts to a post-Christian reality, probably since the fall of Rome. The old models must be rethought. When I say by old models, I mean like the last generation of models. Like the other day, I was talking to a pastor in the network, and they're like, listen, we have to completely rethink this partnership with the public school here. Well, yeah, we have to completely rethink. We have, we have to rethink how we do these things, what they look like, right? So in the midst of it, we don't want to, can't passively just engage in these things and compromise. We have to actively engage with prayer, reflection, study, and work together. And as a church, this is something we want to do well. As a church, this is where we want to be founded in God's word. We want to be the priesthood of believers. We want to be equipped and be sent out so we might proclaim marvelous light, not just tidy up the darkness. So in addition to praying for us, that's a big one. I don't want to move past it. Please be praying for the leadership of this church. Please be praying for one another as we navigate this. And as you marinate yourself in God's word, two opportunities to align us quickly. Member meeting. Uh, tonight we have a member meeting, and I know it's odd to announce a member meeting and talk about it in a sermon. You're like, that sounds boring. Uh, but here's what we're going to, we want to move from being just merely a teaching center to a training center as a church. We've been using that language. Teaching center to just a training center. We love teaching God's word. I love teaching God's word. I love being anchored in it, mining God's word. With that, then what do we do with it? And, and so we want to be a church that equips you as a priesthood of believers to be able to do the work of the ministry that God has called you to. And there are lots of facets to that, but one of the things as we think about actively engaging the culture is that we need to mature our leadership structure from just elders, which is where we've pastors, elders, sorry, I'm not going to break that all down right now, but those are the leadership right now. We've gotten a really healthy place over the last year. Now we're looking at deacons, which are not just whatever you think of deacons, they're those who lead forward the church in acts of service. And we want to have the members involved in the process of discerning what areas are those. And we're going to mine acts together, a few chapters, and we're going to identify what areas, and we're going to begin to identify who are possible candidates from this church for what it looks like to be engaging, both for the building up of the body internally, but also to be engaging throughout the city around us. And so I want to encourage you to be there because this is going to be, I think, a very consequential meeting one, and it's also going to be a time where we are going to continue to think in terms of leadership, thinking, using biblical categories for how we go out into the city. You might be asking, if I'm not a member, can I come? If you're a member in process, you can come. If you're seriously thinking about membership, you can come. Um, just in terms of voting and whatnot, those are just things limited to members right? Um, that's at 6 p.m. in here. Uh, and then lastly, church retreat. You have a little card on your seat. I highly, highly, there are all the details there, the price. Uh, we're getting all the details as soon as we can. If you can be there, be at this. One, it's going to be awesome. It's really going to be a lot of fun. I was like, guys, this has just got to be a ton of fun. So we're already trying to think about how this can just be a ton of fun, have kids clubs, things like that. Um, but it is going to be for the sake of aligning so that the ministries and different areas of the church that were aligned on the vision and then what it looks like to actively engage both in the body here and then out into the world around us. Listen, one of the visions I have for this is I have this vision in my head where, yes, you can build the boat, you can say where the boat needs to go, but unless everyone on the boat rows, the boat don't go. Okay, so this is about we are not going to like we, we are going to be a, a church where everyone knows this is my oar. Man, I love rowing this oar. Right. 
And so we're going to get a line, and then we're going to learn what's, what's, what's the area. And I, I'm, I'm excited to see where, what that looks like in our body. By the way, it's free. I'm not sure if it's on the card. If you're willing to help with the Kids Club, it's free for you. So talk to McKaylin. I think that's true, right? Anyways, I just promised them a free retreat. Um, so anyways, with that, um, I know a little bit over. So the theme of that retreat is going to be onward together. Because listen, guys, this is our call. Our call as a church right now, I'm not going to say, I, I'm not going to be blase and say, well, I think maybe things are going to get better in our society. Actually, if I'm honest, probably won't. I don't know, at least for a while. However, we are called to be bold and be faithful because our God is a faithful God and he is always pursuing us. He's always pursuing the lost and he's called us to join him in that work that he is doing. And I think he's going to do a profound refining work within us, but also a profound renewing work within us and the city around us. And we're going to see people who we never thought would come to Christ. We're going to see God do a supernatural work by his spirit as his word goes out. And believers are freed up from idols to just pursuing Christ and seeing him made known. And I, for one, want to be on the front row for that. That's our call, onward together, with love and truth through proclamation and good deeds, actively engaged, building one another up while boldly pursuing the lost as Christ pursued us. Actively engage over passive withdrawal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that in the midst of this time where it, it just, the default, and at least my natural tendency, it's your fight or flight, and Lord, there's some things just want to fight, and some things just want to run, and, and Lord, we feel overwhelmed, we feel confused. Lord, would you anchor us first in who you are and the story of your redemption? And Lord, there are, I know from this, there are many different topics and issues. What, what about this? What about this? What about this? And all those things are racing through our mind. Lord, for just a moment, would you settle our minds And Lord, anchor us in who you are and anchor us in the fact that we as a church body are called to prioritize this. And Lord, from prioritizing this, would these other things find their proper place? Lord, we have to figure out how to to participate in things like government and how to participate in decision-making at a local level and how to participate. What does education look like? All these different things, Lord, that come up. Lord, would you first and primarily anchor us in your word, anchor us in who you are so that, Lord, we would anchor in our individual homes so we would invest there, not miss out on shepherding our families, not miss out on shepherding and discipling and pursuing those who are immediately around us who you place there. Lord, not get so overwhelmed by the narrative in the world around us, that, Lord, we forget where you've placed us and who's right in front of us. Lord, would you help us to actively engage? Spirit, would you guide us? In Jesus' name, amen.